It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 34, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Clay Bottom Farms' Ben Hartman. Ben is the author of The Lean Farm, a book on minimizing waste and increasing efficiency on the vegetable farm. He's farmed full-time for the past 10 years with his wife, Rachel, in Goshen, Indiana, where they're both making a living on less than an acre of production, selling 90% of their produce within 10 miles of the farm. Of course, we talk about applying the lean methodology on the modern market farm, including the basics of creating value, establishing pull with customers, and the five S pillars of the lean cycle. Sort, set in order, shine, standardize, and sustain the cycle. Plus, we get into some cool details about how Claybottom Farm keeps produce cold at CSA drop sites, how they design a CSA share, marketing and pricing strategies at farmers markets, and how a stupid little sticky note makes them thousands of dollars a year. Ben first came to my attention a couple of years ago when he wrote an article about applying the lean methodologies to his farm for Growing for Market magazine. And I thought, wow, this guy's really onto something. So I was super excited to have this interview and this approach that, that Ben takes to farming that's not what we would normally find. And I think that's really cool. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. And we'll get on to the show after a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest business management texts, farming essays, or all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Ben Hartman from Clay Bottom Farm, welcome to the podcast. Well, hey, Chris, thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. I've been I've been digging into your book, Ben, on the 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 uh, the lean farm, and what a what a fantastic book. I mean, I I'm really I mean, this is really great, and I just want to. I mean, I'm, I think a lot of times people, you know, you get a guest on the podcast because they wrote a book, and you end up plugging the book, whether it's that good or not. But <laughs> this is really a great asset, and I want to. I, I know we'll spend some time digging into that as we go on, but. To start off, would you tell us about your farm, about Clay Bottom Farm there in, in Goshen, Indiana? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, first uh, first of all, I, would, I wanted to mention that uh, the Farmer to Farmer podcast is an absolute favorite here, here at Clay Bottom Farm. I mean, my wife and I both listen to it very regularly. Uh, it's hands down our favorite podcast, and we think you ask great questions. You have excellent people on, so we're uh, I'm just honored to be on here. Well, uh, thanks, Ben. And in terms of Claybottom Farm, uh, we're in Goshen, Indiana, and uh, we're a four-season farm, uh, meaning we have something uh, we have something to offer our customers all year. Uh, we have a strong local commitment, uh, meaning that 90% of our food ends up on plates within 10 miles of the farm. Uh, the farm consists of uh, my wife Rachel and I. Uh, she farms part-time. And part-time raises our son, Arlo. Uh, we have another son on the way in February. And then I'm on the farm full-time. Uh, then we have two part-time employees and uh, one or two interns usually help. Uh, we have uh, 9,000 square feet or four greenhouses. I've got 9,000 9, square feet that are, that are uh, under plastic, under greenhouses. Uh, that's about a fifth of an acre. Uh, two of those are heated. And most of our production comes out of those greenhouses. Uh, and then in addition, we have half to three quarters of an acre of land in cultivation. 
And so the total size is now, it's currently less than one acre. And you're making a living from that. Uh, yeah. And it's, it hasn't always, I, we have, well, number one, we haven't always made a living yet, but number two, we haven't always uh, been as small as, uh, as we are now. I think it's important to know it's not just making a living. However, it's making a living and working 40 hours a week or 40 hours or less a week or keeping, you know, sustainable hours. Um, because one could work a hundred or more hours each and, and conceivably make a living. Um, how, however, we want, we wanted to be in this for the long haul. And so we've worked pretty hard at setting up systems that'll work for us when we're 50, 60, uh, or beyond, as well as they work for us when we're in our late twenties. And that's what you are now in your late twenties. I wish. No, we've moved on. We're, uh, okay. we're, we're in our mid thirties. I'm 37. And you've been farming for, for how long there at Clay Bottom Farm? Uh, yeah, we've been going at it about 10 years, uh, 10 years of doing it for a full-time living. Uh, we had a couple years in which we did it part-time, in, in which we worked off-farm jobs. And both of us uh, were in education, and our, our goal from the beginning uh, was to try to match our teacher's salaries. In other words, we weren't. We're not uh, we're not aiming for doctors' wages here, but if we can match our teachers' salaries, we thought uh, that's good enough. And because we would also have the benefits of self-employment and being on a farm, and it didn't it didn't happen overnight. It took us several years. Um, our we I can say that we do uh, we do both uh, generally uh, love our profession. I like that idea of setting a really firm financial goal to say and, and benchmarking it with, with where, with the world that you came out of. I, and, and are you really working 40 hours or less a week? Uh, it, it depends on the time of year. Uh, that's a year. That's, uh, I'd say that'd be an average, uh, in the winter, it'd probably be less. And in the summer, it, uh, it probably goes, goes a little higher sometimes. Which makes sense. I mean, I think most jobs have, have some seasonal variability to it. Yeah. One of the leading principles we really tried to follow is one called Hijunka. Hijunka, and that means uh, to level the load. And so we've worked pretty hard to level our daily workload, our weekly workload, our monthly workload, and, and even our yearly workload. So we're working a pretty even pace all year. I think that's really smart. And something that I, I feel like, I know we got wrong when we started doing winter production on our farm because we didn't really use it to level out the workload. We used it to just add more work in the wintertime, which really didn't do us a whole lot of good. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, one can burn out fairly easily if you're adding a winter workload on top of a pretty heavy summer workload. And so actually leveling at the level of the load means working at it from both directions. You want to sort of level off the mountain peaks and you want to raise the valleys. And so in the winter, uh, increasing our winter production is a way of raising the, the valleys. And actually that wasn't too hard. Uh, there are a lot of good resources on doing that. And we have these four greenhouses. Uh, the market was eager for our stuff in the winter. What was perhaps more of a challenge was leveling out the peaks, or in other words, decreasing our summer production so that we had enough energy going into the winter. How did you go about doing that? Uh, it was mostly, I'd say, through precise forecasting, it, which is really at, at the heart of lean production. Is Let me back up a step here. There's these two pieces to lean production. Uh, on, the, on the one hand is 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 getting rid of waste or waste elimination. And that's what most people are familiar with. But when you hear the word lean, you think of a, an operation that has cut out a lot of unnecessary movement and processes or things from your farm. 
However, the right. other half is value adding or, or an intense focus on creating what customers actually want. Um, and so in agriculture, so there are these two activities that happen on your farm and they're actually, those are tight definitions. There, there, there are only two activities that happen. Okay. You're either adding value or you're contributing to waste. And really what the lean system is all about is putting a set of eyeglasses on and analyzing your work so that you recognize when am I actually adding value and when am I contributing to muda, which is the word used in lean for waste. And so the goal, the goal is smooth flow or totally uninterrupted work. You're just completely, you're, you've eliminated all the muda and you're just adding value. Now that's not totally possible. There's always going to be some muda involved. Uh, for instance, when you fill out your taxes, uh, you're right. not you're not directly adding value for your customer. Your customer's not paying you to fill out your taxes, but you have to do it. And there are all kinds of examples of work you have to do. Um, however, the idea is that you focus many activities on value adding. Okay, so there are these these two activities that happen on farms: muta and value adding. On most farms, the emphasis is on compressing the value adding time. Uh, in other words. How do we produce our product faster or at lower cost, usually through better, through more technology? For instance, I grew up on a 500-acre corn and soybean farm, and the focus is on bigger tractors, GIS tracking systems. And in, in vegetable operation, the focus is on fancier greenhouses, on hydroponic systems, basically on technological solutions. And we get visits on a regular basis from people trying to sell us fancier greenhouses or trying to sell us different growing systems, different types of fertilizers, different, different ways to spend money to add more value. And really what Lean offers is a totally different approach. It says really the focus should be on the other half, cutting out the muda. And that's the reason one of our CSA customers, Steve Brennan, uh, he owns the aluminum trailer company in Napanee, Indiana. It's a very successful uh, company. They made trailers, uh, uh, that they ship all over the U- all over the U.S. Uh, they're very high end units, and he's very, has a very lean operation. And he'd been employing lean in his business for several years. And he said he shot me an email about five years ago. He'd been a customer for a couple of years. He knew, you know, how sloppy we were. <laughs> he knew that there were probably ways that we could improve what we were doing. And so he offered to come out and watch his work and offer suggestions for leaning up our operation or for implementing this lean system. And I think he was just curious to know whether it would work in a non-manufacturing context. And actually, uh, so Lean began with ja- with Japanese automobile manufacturing. It migrated its way in the U.S. and U.S. Uh, automobile manufacturing, and then in other forms of manufacturing. And now what's happened the last couple of years, it's sort of spilling over into all types of industries. It's very popular in hospitals now. And it's popular in other types of service industries, and it's being used by large businesses and small businesses, and people are realizing, hey, there are actually the 10 types of waste that are identified in Lean are actually ubiquitous. They're all over the place in all types of businesses, and that any type of business can benefit from a focus on getting rid of the muda. Anyhow, so all I have to say, the reason that we were interested in talking with Steve is that he offered this different approach. These other... Solicitors are coming on the farm and offering us GIS systems for our tractors. And he was offering us something that didn't cost any, anything. He, he was offering us better process. He was offering us a, an analytical way of thinking about our work so that we could 
be more efficient, cut out the waste, and have more time for adding value. Well, and I think this is actually a really important point in general for for farmers, um, especially for beginning farmers, which, you know, at, at 10 years, I mean, you guys still are technically uh, just on the on the outer edge of being beginning farmers. They, I mean, so often it's all about what tool do I need? What mm-hmm. piece of technology, what record keeping program is going to make the difference? And so often I feel like it's it's really about the process. It's about the uh-huh. management process. And that's where the opportunities for improvement really are, because you can have the fanciest tractor with the fanciest GPS system and mm-hmm. you're not going to get, um, if, if you're not a good manager, you're not going to get results out of it. I guess the way I look at it is lean is not anti-technology. It's not opposed to having a nice greenhouse. We have actually four fairly nice greenhouses and we're as small as we are, as we are, uh, excuse me, we're heavily mechanized. Uh, we do rely on tractors, all kinds of implements, and automated systems in our greenhouse. But lean is not anti-technology. However, lean is about a focus on process right. and not on spending money on, on technology. And, and the genius of the whole system, and this is kind of at the heart of it, is this equation. Uh, eliminated waste equals free capacity. And what that means is once you cut out a chunk of waste, say you save an hour, an hour find a way to improve your process, so you save an hour of time a week, that's an hour you can spend on adding value to your customer. And so not only do you save the cost, you actually get free capacity for your farm. And so what capacity is, it's the infrastructure, it's the time and talent you have to add value to your customers. And usually adding capacity is kind of expensive. It means purchasing more land, buying more tractors, building more greenhouses, uh, looking for more customers, digging up more accounts. And what Lean offers is a way to add capacity for totally free, just get rid of the waste. New free, free, new free up capacity. And so there's that, there's this exponential component. I really like that, and I think that's that's something that usually doesn't happen with machinery purchases. You don't you don't end up with exponential improvements. You end up with you know more more. I think it's more of a linear improvement. You know we're gonna we can we can increase our harvest speed by this much if we buy this fancy harvest tool, whereas management management decisions, changing processes, doing the things like you're talking about, eliminating waste, it really does create this exponential return. It, 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 it tends to, it tends to be a a positive feedback loop. That's true. And it, it's a positive feedback loop that goes on year after year. And let me give you one concrete example. And this is just a a stupid little example. Uh, In, in, uh, in our watching area, uh, we use uh, metal shelving, uh, metal shelves that we lay our bunched items on to hose. A lot of farms use this setup, and we had crates underneath the whole, underneath those shelves to hold them in the air. And our watching area is on a slope cement slab. And one day we realized, hey, it's taking us a long time to clean up, clean up afterwards because we had to basically dismantle the whole system in order to clean the floor. And we realized, hey, let's get rid of the crates and hang the tables. And then we can squeegee underneath uh, our hosing cables without having to dismantle the whole system. And it saves maybe 10 minutes a week. However, 10 minutes a week, if you're working 50 weeks a year, and if you're going at it for 30 years, it's gonna, it actually adds up to a couple months in the lifetime of our farm. And so it's this long-term 
way of looking at every single process. And when I had talked to uh, Steve Brenneman at the Women Trailer Company, when they he said that when they shave 15 minutes off of their work process, he said that equates to $30,000 a year that they free up to add more capacity, to hire more workers or increase wages for everyone. On our tiny farm, our benefits aren't that large. And that's where on larger farms that employ lean, they can really have a huge, huge benefit. If you can shave 15 minutes and free up $30,000 a year, over 10 years, that's 300,000 that you've completely freed up simply by sitting down and thinking about a better process. And you didn't have to build more greenhouses, find more customers and buy more tractors. Anyhow, that's the whole genius of the system. That's actually a question I want to start with right there. You just said, I mean, it's, it's sitting down and thinking about processes. This isn't necessarily something that you're able to do on the fly. I'm imagining that five years ago, uh, you're running this small operation. You're probably putting in a whole lot of hours. How did you make the time to begin the management process here, to really begin that process of analyzing, first of all, learning about the system and then analyzing the, your, your farms operations and then actually putting in the time and energy to implement. Okay. Yeah. That's a good question. And essentially we love the management piece and we love the field work. However, the management piece is, is one that we've also grown to love. And most new farmers I've met don't get into it because they love the business end of farming and they don't get into it because they love management. However, it's a very important piece. And essentially for us, the first, well, let me back up and say the reason I got into farming was, uh, it was around 10 years ago, I started noticing a little glitch in my voice. And over a couple of months, my voice continued to deteriorate uh, to the point where I woke up in the morning and, and had very little voice function. And so I went to an ear, nose, throat specialist, and he diagnosed me with a condition called spasmodic dysphonia. And essentially said it was more or less, uh, chances were good that it was degenerative, that I continued to lose voice functioning. And that got me thinking, I need another career here. I can't keep. Uh, in a, uh, I, I was on a track. I would, I'd have probably gone on a graduate school and, and not gone on a professor track. And I realized, hey, I just I got to get off that get off that ladder because you need a voice to enter that type of career. And the reality is, through working with, so I got into farming thinking that I could avoid people. <laughs> and right. it's been it's been <laughs> it, it's been just the opposite. I probably talk as much or more now. Uh, than I did at the uh, than I did in, in, uh, in when I was in the school system, and because the reality is you have to interact with customers, you have to know what they value, you. and Lee would say more than that, you have to know what they want, when they want it, and how much they want. You have to get very precise on answering those questions. Okay, and so to go back to my voice story, my voice did actually begin to improve. I went to Purdue University, worked with some speech therapists, and there are still some glitches, which you'll hear occasionally. However, I've regained most of my voice functioning. And thank goodness, because you actually need it in this business. <laughs> okay? And so, yeah. so to answer your question about the magic piece, it really, what turned the ship around for us was when we began an intense focus on answering those three questions, on getting more precise on value. What do customers want? When do they want it? 
how much they want. Because that's really the heart of lean. If you can't answer those questions, you're you're not going to last very long. And the idea with lean is this: the idea, a, a, a big piece is the kaizen idea, which is continuous improvement. And so, what that means is you don't answer these questions once. You you answer them this year, then you go back and revisit them next year, and you get more even more precise. And so, let me give you an example. We have a Sticky note in our tomato processing area. And I call it our stupid little sticky note because that's all it is, a stupid little yellow sticky note. However, it's made us thousands and thousands of dollars and it secured lots of accounts for us and put us way ahead of our competition. And, and the only thing that's on this sticky note is a list of our accounts and the types of tomatoes they like. And I'm very specific. For instance, there's a grocery account that we deliver to do twice a week and they like their tomatoes just a little bit orange because they're going to sit on the shelf for, you know, a few days or a week before the customer takes them home. Right. We, we also deliver to a local bar and they serve half pound hamburgers, these large hamburgers. They want our largest slicing tomato. Okay. And they don't want yellow tomatoes. They don't want, they don't want weird tomatoes and a big, red, you know, fatty slicing tomatoes. And, and I could go on and on with the different accounts and the different types of tomatoes they want. But the point is, Having that little sticky note puts us way ahead of our competition because we're in Indiana. There's a there's a lot of Amish and Mennonite. There's a lot of can, there's a lot of tomatoes growing around here. They could get their tomatoes from any number of places. However, we're able to deliver just a notch more value to them because we're more specific in identifying value, and that and that has secured those accounts for several years for us. Anyhow, that was really a turning point for us is when we, we started with, with each of our customers, whether farm our customers or CSA customers, I was really digging in and, and, and answering those questions with as much enthusiasm as we looked into our process questions. You know, farmers are very interested in learning at the beginning, how do we grow tomatoes? How do we grow carrots? What's the most efficient way of doing this? And that's awesome. You need that kind of energy. However, you should take that same level of energy toward answering those questions about what your customers actually want. Uh, one inspiration for, uh, for me when I did some research on, uh, on lean was the story of the Toyota, of the Toyota, uh, Toyota Sienna. And so in 2005, when Toyota went to redesign the Sienna. Uh, and the Sienna is their minivan line, right? That's correct. Uh-huh. Uh, they sent an engineer over to the U.S. and he drove a minivan in all 50 states. And then he went up to Canada. He drove a minivan in all 13 provinces of Canada. Canada. He went down to Mexico and drove a minivan in all parts of Mexico. And what he did was a practice called Genshi Kombuchu, which means close and personal direct observation to really understand the situation. And so what he noticed, a couple of examples in Santa Fe, New Mexico, he noticed the streets were kind of tight. And it's kind of hard to turn a conventional minivan. So they tighten up the turning radius so they stand up by three degrees. Uh, he noticed uh, that Americans tend to drive long distances. And so when they, and they also eat, they also eat a lot while they drive. This doesn't happen so much in Japan. And so he invented the idea of the flip up console where you can set a hamburger. Uh, there are something like 13 or 14 cup holders in the Sienna. Uh, make it very easy for American consumers to eat. Uh, an engineer stood in a parking lot in an Ann Arbor, Michigan Home Depot just to observe how people were using their mini vans. And what he noticed is, you know, Americans, we're very do-it-yourselfers. We, we're weekend warriors. We love to, you know, remodel our own houses and build our own greenhouses, that sort of thing. And what he noticed is people were coming out of Home Depot with these four-bay sheets of plywood, 
and it's getting all pissed because they can't fit him in. The, they try to shove him in, use bungee cords and whatnot. He said, okay, that's it. Our next minivan, you're going to get a four-way sheet of plywood in there. And, and they did, and they did those redesigns, and everyone followed suit. And the Honda, Honda Odyssey that Rachel and I own, uh, you can get a four-way sheet of plywood in there. And so I guess what, I, what Rachel and I had to ask ourselves is, how many farmers have, have even gone half that distance in really learning and respecting their customers? That's a really hard thing to do. I mean, I know what I'm good at growing. I mean, I, I know what's in the marketplace and I didn't really get into farming to spend a bunch of time talking to people. How did, how did you go about that process? That's a good question because in, in the food industry, so with automobiles, people tend to be heavily opinionated. You probably have your favorite types of vehicles. You know, we have our favorites with, with food. We have our favorite foods. However, we're very reserved about telling the producers what we actually think. And so, for instance, if you're in a restaurant and you just and you just barely got your meal down because it was pretty lousy, the waitress is going to come around and ask, hey, how was your meal? You're going to say, hey, that was a wonderful dish. Okay, so it's, it's hard to get straight answers out of people sometimes. And so what we did, what we did is we, we every year made a point of, of eating in each of our restaurants. We looked at the menu, we talked to chefs, we looked at how they're preparing their foods. Uh, we asked if there were anything different we can do on the service end. Uh, for instance, we switched to giving all of our chefs text messages to let them know what we have because, because that way they can place an order while flipping eggs or playing at the dish. They don't have to check their email. And same with our farmers market CSA customers. We got, we were fortunate to get invitation to eat meals in a couple of our CSA customers' homes, which is an excellent opportunity to really ask some of those questions and get more, uh, more direct answers on how they're using the food that's in their CSA box. Is, uh, is there anything differently we can be doing? And so, for instance, one thing we learned through those conversations is we used to have a fairly narrow pickup window of uh, probably three or four hours on a Friday evening in which they could come to their pickup locations and pick up their CSA boxes. And the reality is our customers a lot of times have kids, they have busy schedules, and it's difficult for them to make it in that narrow, narrow window. And so what we did was we put uh, refrigeration units at our pickup locations, and now customers can, can come and pick their food up at any time they want. And then more recently this year, we partnered with, with our local food co-op, and they can come to the co-op. They can come to the co-op and pick their CSA basket up whenever they're coming to the co-op and do their shopping anyhow. I'm really interested in this. You you went and invested in in coolers for your drop sites, and you're you're not a big CSA. I mean, this isn't like I mean, you're not talking hundreds of boxes and and uh-huh. something really. I mean, how how did you? Can you tell us a little bit about how you actually made that work? Okay. Uh, yeah. So, like I said, what we had learned from uh, having some dinners with some CSA customers uh, was uh, it's sometimes inconvenient for them to pick up during a narrow window of time. And we're in, you have to remember uh, that uh, we're, we're not in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, we're not in Northeast Vermont. There's not a strong indigenous demand for local organic produce around here. There are just a couple of CSAs and several hundred mile radius a year. And so we feel like we need to make our product very convenient uh, to attract customers. And anyhow, so the nuts and bolts of it is uh, we went to a couple auctions, uh, purchased a couple big chest freezers, like the largest we could find, and purchased one uh, upright refrigerator. 
And with the chest freezers, I really like them because they're very uh, efficient to operate if you can operate them at refrigerator temperatures. And what we did is we went to a, a website called Backwood Solar, and they sell these conversion kits. You can uh, convert any size chest freezer down to a refrigerator. And chest freezers, of course, are very thick while there's lots of insulation in there, and it costs just pennies uh, a year to, to operate these as as refrigerators. And it, it adds a lot of value to our product because it it respects the wishes of our customers. They can come pick up at their convenience rather than on our schedule. That's really cool. I mean, that's, I really like that. Well, so you said it's backwoods solar and we'll make sure that we've got a link to that okay. on the show notes mm -hmm. for the page. People want to go and take a look at that. But I mean, what a, well, when I think about the biggest logistical challenges that, that we had and in our CSA with, with getting stuff delivered when we were using members' houses as drop sites, it really was around keeping stuff cold. I mean, that's just such a huge, that's, that's such a huge challenge. Uh-huh. And uh, another benefit to the refrigeration units, uh, a couple of years we were running CSA all year and, and we might get back into doing that. The refrigeration units help keep things warm too. <laughs> and so we right. went, uh, our local hardware just got a small space heater or, um, on a thermostat to put in them. And, and so I would keep these crops from freezing or keep their baskets from freezing. How many CSA shares are you fitting into a chest freezer? Okay. It depends on the freezer. I guess, I think our smallest, we're fitting about 15 boxes and our largest, we can fit up to about 50 boxes. And so you can, you can get a lot of value in there. We have $25 boxes and $35 boxes. And so we can fit well over a thousand dollars in into one of these units. And how big are those? How big are the boxes then that you're packing? Uh, half bushel boxes and three quarter bushel boxes. And right right now we're just using the regular wax produce boxes. Um, okay. We're always on the lookout for alternatives, but we've right now that's what we're using. So from a from a lean value perspective, how are you deciding mm -hmm. what goes in the CSA boxes? Because I mean that seems like a real okay. challenge that a lot of farmers have. And, you know, mm. I mean, you can fill up the box with kale. Uh, people like to have a full box, uh -huh. but, but at the same time, nobody really wants three quarters of a bushel of kale either. Yeah. So how, how are you guys towing that line? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And uh, really it begins with what customers want and not what we have on the farm. And for instance, if, if we have a nice set, uh, stand of kale, um, but we've delivered kale for a couple of weeks in a row. Uh, we will forego that nice stand of kale and put something else in. And really, the, the way I describe it is our CSA has four legs. And this is based on conversations we've had and observations. And, and keep in mind, too, we're in the rural Midwest. This is what people around here want to eat. Uh, number one, the first leg of the CSA table is some kind of a tomato product, something in the tomato or pepper family. And around here, they like big red standard hybrid tomatoes. We do slip some heirlooms in now and then, um, but standard type tomatoes are what's most popular. Uh, the second leg would be some type of a green, and whether that's salad mix or spinach uh, or kale or Swiss chard, something in that green family. Uh, the third leg is something in the allium family, an onion, leek, garlic, uh, because that's 
a product people are going to use on a, on a regular basis. And then the fourth leg is perhaps most important. That's what we call our snack. And that's an item people can just pull, pull right out and start eating or put in their kid's lunchbox. I like um, exam- that. Yeah, examples would be like carrots. So we've, you know, we wash them uh, and we make sure they're small enough. There's not a lot of process processing they have to do. Uh, radish or hockeye turnips, that type of an item. And then in addition, to the, so those are the four legs. We try to make sure every CSA box has one of those items in it. And then in addition, we would have one or two unusual items per week. And around here, that'd be something like a bald fennel uh, that takes a little more description and customers need a little more help knowing what to do with it. So a little, a little bit of intrigue, but not too much intrigue when somebody opens up the box. That's correct. And that's what works around here. It might not work in all areas, but around here, that's, yeah. that's, what we do. that's the formula we've come up with. I think it's really important to have those kinds of, um, I call them mnemonics, but I don't know if that's the right term, but, but, uh-huh. you know, things to fall back on when you're trying to design the CSA box or, or whatever you're trying to do to be able to say, well, have we covered these four bases? Uh-huh. You know, this is, this is what we want. Now, obviously you're not putting in the tomatoes or peppers in the, uh, in your winter shares. I uh, know that's correct. What we do do is we keep peppers pretty late into the year. Usually we'll run out of them between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so when, when the, we pull tomatoes out of the greenhouse and those, those in, we, we do have peppers in cold storage that can take us through to the end of the CSA. But you're correct. The first couple of CSA boxes uh, wouldn't necessarily have a tomato or pepper product. We're talking about some real practical uh implementations of this lean idea here, you know, you, and, and really I'm interested in this focus on value that we've had so far uh, on the lean side of things. Cause usually when I think of lean, I think about production practices mm-hmm. and organization on the front end. Mm-hmm. And you're really talking about the sorts of, you know, creating value, which is really what, what's pulling on those production practices. Is that a, is that a fair way to put that? Uh, yeah, and actually, that's the language uh, that lean producers would use. Uh, they would say you want to create pool uh, rather than push. And the difference is you want to be the caboose. You want to be at the, the end of the line, and your customers are at the beginning. And so what they want, their interests are the engine pulling everything else. And you're producing precisely what they want. And so... With our restaurants, we throw ourselves a behind the scenes behind the scenes farm for uh, six or eight Goshen area restaurants. And what those chefs want, and I sit down with them at the beginning of every year, and 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 we go over what I'm going to put in for them. I I, I tell our employees uh, that we basically work for that restaurant. We may as well be in the back end of that restaurant, and they're the we're the caboose and they're the engine pulling our production here. And just same with our other, other sets of customers and push production on the other hand is, is growing what you want to grow in the amounts that you have a hunch will work and then pushing your product on the market. And it's just, a, it's a, it's a totally different mindset and a different way of going about your business. And actually most U S agriculture is push production. Uh, in that it's mostly corn and soybeans, just a few items. And it's these items are grown in excess and they're pushed out onto the public in the form of ethanol. Uh, even nail polish has corn products in it. 
uh, deodorants have corn products in it. Just about anything you can think of now has some kind of corn or soybean product in it. And the reality is that's because these products are, or corn and soybeans are so much overproduced and pushed. And so we in agriculture, as farmers, should actually respect their local communities, listen to their local communities, and produce as precisely as possible what those what the eaters in those communities say they want. It's really an interesting idea when we're talking about local foods, though, because I would think that a lot of, especially conventional restaurants or traditional grocery shoppers, they're really, they're not in a position of, of pulling on local foods. They're, you know, they're, there's a lot of people out there that are plenty happy just doing buying the same stuff that they bought last year. You know, let's get some more, let's get some more corn products and let's get some more tomatoes from California because they're red and they fit on a burger. How are uh-huh. we balancing that out with, with trying to, it seems like to some degree marketing has to have a, a push element to it. How do you balance uh, that out? Yeah, that's true. And I'm glad you brought that up. I guess the way I balance that out is for the most part, I'm sort of at peace with removing from my shoulders the burden of educating the American public about their food choices. Okay, we have NPR, we have Michael Powell, and we have Joel Southens. There are a lot of good people out there putting a lot of energy into educating the public on making better food choices, and we do as much as we can. Um, at our booth, we'll have you know information sheets out through our website. However, we realize that we're farmers. Our focus should be on production, and let's leave it to other people to put their best energy on educating and convincing the public to eat health, health, healthier. I think so often we get into that mode as as organic vegetable farmers, where we have to save the world. It's our responsibility to change the food supply and you know feed everybody that doesn't have food and and uh, you know change the school system and what's on the lunch plates and. I mean, I guess it makes sense from a lean from, you know, if you just think about the word lean, that you're kind of narrowing your focus a little bit uh-huh. so that you're not trying to, so you're just not spread so thin. That's true. I mean, I feel like I barely have time to hang out with our, hang with our kid and uh, manage the production on our farm. And if I'm going to take on say global poverty or uh, our unhealthy food system in the U S on top of all that, I just burned out. So we've kind of chosen to just focus on our production. Let's pivot here and talk about some some practical things and maybe kind of work from the bottom up. You know, what are what are some practical things that you're doing on your farm that that other people might be able to implement on theirs? And then and then let's let's hit on the lean principles that those are that those are enacting. Yeah, good. I love talking about our farm systems here. So you just uh, so the first lean principle we use uh, on the farm is simplicity. How can we reduce our moves? Make our system as simple as possible so that new workers can come in and within a matter of weeks fit, fit in and start like they're being actually productive and useful. And so one of the things we did, first of all, to reduce our moves, we completely changed uh, our, our soil management and soil preparation. And we used to use a conventional uh, cover crop type of a system and did a lot of crop rotating, kept a lot of grass and charts. When we started analyzing our system, we realized we were really going over our field many more times than we probably really needed to. Uh, many of our crops don't need chisel pine every time before we put them in, for instance. Many of our crops don't need cover crops. And so, actually, this, and this is unconventional, and it's not probably not 
not the right solution for all farms. However, we've completely done away with cover crops uh, on our small scale. They take too long and they use up too much time. Uh, instead, we've created what's really an engineered soil uh, that's 8 to 12 inches deep, and I call it a deep composting system. And essentially, uh, over our one acre, uh, we spread a mix of compost, duck manure, grass, leaf clippings, moldy hay that we've turned into compost, and we covered our entire growing area with 8 to 12 inches of this. And the advantage is that we have consistently loose, consistently loose soil. Uh, fertility management is very fast. Most crops uh, need nothing. We just pull one crop uh, and plant another without any amending, without around a cover crop, so you need tweaking. Uh, one example is we I just got done pulling out some onions, and in the very same holes, the onions were growing plastic, in the very same holes, we popped in some heads of lettuce. There is zero soil preparation, so it's a very lean system. Uh, we just harvested carrots, and in the same plot that carrots went in, uh, I simply raked with uh, one of these 30, 30-inch uh, Austrian bed rakes and planted salad mix, so almost no soil preparation. And the way we can get away with it is we have this deep compost uh, that is very loose and very easy to work with and, and, and consistently high in nutrients. You said that you put on 8 to 10 inches of compost across this entire one acre vegetable farm. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, that's a lot of compost. And we're that's using a more, lot of compost. We're using 50 yards or more per year. And now we, we use a bit less than that, but it, it does amount to a lot of compost. And I wrote about this in the book too. We, we really consider ourselves a compost making farm as much as we do a vegetable producing farm. And I guess the reality is that when we analyze the amount of work it takes to make and manage this compost, it's, it's actually a lot less than it is to grow cover crops. And it has that additional advantage of we have this consistently nice soil. I oftentimes say that the vegetable farms aren't the place to try to, to be a sustainable closed loop system um, because of the nature of vegetable farming. But you've kind of, I mean, you've almost taken that another step and it sounds like kind of thrown that out the window. I think that's true. I would say we're, we're not a closed loop system. We're not even close because we couldn't, on our one acre, produce all the fertility we needed. I, I said at the beginning of the program, we have this local commitment, and 90% of our food ends up on plates within 10 miles of the farm. And we have that same commitment, however, to our inputs. And one of the things we're very proud of is that 100% of our inputs are from within 10 miles of the farm. And Indiana is the largest duck-producing state in the nation, so there's as much free duck manure as we'd want around here. Um, I get uh, moldy hay uh, when and we live around a lot of Amish neighbors. They make a lot of hay. If it rains, if, if the rains are too heavy, their hay is too moldy to bale, so they'll drop it off here. Uh, we have sources of grass, grass and leaf clippings and leaf mold, and it, it all comes from around here. And one of the tips I give to beginning farmers: if you want to spend time doing research, uh, put as much energy as you can into figuring out where your local sources of organic matter are coming from. What happens to the grass, leaf clippings, the moldy hay from your neighbors, that sort of thing. Get as much of that onto your property as, as possible. Now, there, there are some disadvantages with this system I feel like I should mention. Um, it isn't probably impractical on a large scale. It does require a skid loader. Uh, we do have a fairly large skid loader. 
and you have to have that cheap source of organic matter around you. Most of ours is free, and we would get some leaf mold we pay less than $10 a yard for. And so we, we were fortunate we're in an area we have an economical source of this stuff. Um, if we weren't in that kind of an area, it might not be feasible. So that's that's really interesting. I've never heard of anybody doing something like that before on on as large of a scale as you are on that one acre scale of of actually, like you say, engineering a soil. Uh, I just I wanted to say too, one of, a couple of savings we get through this system is we we no longer do soil tests, and I, and I know that's gonna gonna sound alarmist to uh, to some. However, our fertility has been so high, we have confidence in our soil we felt like we were wasting time and money doing soil tests. And two, we've learned to look at a previous crop, give us an indication as to what kind of amending the next crop is going to need. Uh, for instance, if our spinach starts to, eat to yellow around the edge, we're going to add a bit more duck manure if we're going to plant another leafy green in that area. If we also don't use any granular amendments. We don't use any liquid fertilizers, no fish emulsions. So I guess that's what I like about a system is it's just super simple. We've got one source of soil fertility. To to circle back then on your soil preparation system, I mean, you really, it sounds like don't need to have much of a soil preparation system. It's on average about one time a year. We'll get off the tractor in the bed shaper and we'll shape our beds. And I call them semi-permanent raised beds because for the most part, we and we have a, we have around a hundred uh, between fifty and sixty feet long, and they're semi permanent because about once a year we have to go back and reshape them. Um, otherwise, those beds are are where they are from from one year to the next. Uh, the bed shaper creates beds that are about six to eight inches deep and uh, thirty inches across the top, and so it works really nicely with Elliott Coleman thirty inch bed system that we've been And then in addition, we we have the smallest size BCS uh, to 710. Uh, if we're going to, say, incorporate a bit more duck manure, uh, we'll spread the duck manure and then incorporate, incorporate it in top couple inches with that BCS. And then to cultivate the aisles and around the perimeter, perimeters, uh, we purchased a Troyville Junior, which is the smallest Troy, uh, small size uh, tiller that Troy Bill had had made, and I don't believe they're making these anymore. So you got to shop around to find one. But they're wonderful little machines. They're like three or four, three or four horsepower engines, and so they're fairly strong, but they're so compact. It's about twelve inches, and so it's excellent for uh, cultivating up the aisles and around the pruners of our plots, and that helps keep um, keep our weed pressure weed pressure low because then the only hand weeding or hand hoeing we have to do is on the bed surface. And then, so we have these semi-permanent uh, raised beds, about a hundred of them. They're about 50 or 60 feet low on six to eight inches deep. And then in terms of our crop production system, again, this is unconventional. It might not work for all farms, uh, but we've moved to a full transplant system uh, where we're transplanting everything except for carrots and baby greens. And then our radishes and, and beans, we might see those by hand. We don't do very many of those crops. And so what this means is even for turnips and beets, our peas, um, crops that are often direct seeded, we're doing we're doing uh, by transplants. And a, a lot of these we'll do is multi-cell, multi-cell transplant. Uh, for instance, Multi, we'll multi-plant cells, right? Multi-plant cell, that's correct. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, turnips will put four or five seeds per cell. Same with the beets and the peas. 
and then again, and as a as a way to keep our system as simple as possible, well, we keep our transplant spacing all the same. It's always about 10 inches. Uh, we do three rows in 10 inches. And so it's very easy for workers um, to switch from tra- transplanting one type of a crop to another. Okay. That's really interesting to me that, that you would be um, doing so little direct seeding. Part of the reason is, I can't remember if I mentioned this lean idea of, uh, it's called five Ys. And the idea is if, if something goes amiss in your production system, uh, for instance, a goal that we have is every seed that we purchase should eventually turn into cash. Okay. And then, and so if we have a seed that didn't turn into cash, then we use this, this five Y system, which means we ask the question why five times. That sounds like a three-year-old. But okay. <laughs> let's let's try it anyways. What's so let's do a let's do a five wise exercise. Can you walk us through how how that might go? Okay, I'm glad you said something about a three year old because uh one of the, one of the realities is three year olds love to ask why a lot. And so it's a it's a habit that comes very naturally when we're young. As we get older, adults tend to find the practice cumbersome and somewhat annoying. However, from a lean perspective, we need to step back into our three-year-old spells here, maybe a four or five-year-old, and start asking why a little more. Um, okay, so uh, let me give you an example uh, that I wrote about in the book. And in, the, in our winter greenhouses, uh, we had spinach that we, we got poor germination on. And so not every one of our seeds is going to turn into cash. And so we have to ask the question, well, why? So at the end of that process, we realized, is because our overhead waterers were not watering on a regular basis because our battery, we use uh, battery-powered uh, timers, uh, the battery juice had run out. And so the root problem is we didn't have adequate maintenance schedule. And so we revised our maintenance schedule. And so now once a year, we replace all the batteries and all our timers. And so we get at the root of the problem to figure out what the reason is our seeds aren't, aren't, aren't germinating or turning into cash. Now, one of the interesting things is we, as we started using this practice, we learned that most of our failures were happening in the first two to three weeks of life. Usually seeds weren't germinating, or if they germinate, insects would hit them right away. Their insect pressure tends to be highest on young, weak plants. And so we really revised our system to place an intense focus on making sure those first couple of weeks of life are healthy, uh, ideal weeks for our crops. Um, and that's the reason we moved to this full transplant system because we were able to control the health of our young transplants in our uh, germane greenhouse better than we were just swinging seeds out in the open. And it's the reason we developed a germinating chamber and so that we get consistent germination for all of our seeds. And again, we're using one of these chest freezers I was telling you about earlier. And uh, instead of using it as a refrigeration unit, uh, we went to our local hardware and purchased an electric hot water heater element and put it in a metal pan of water that's in the chest freezer. We It's an upright chest freezer, so we sat it up on the end and built some shelving. And essentially, the hot, the hot water heater element kicks on when the temperature gets below a certain, a certain degree. And so we always have a very high humidity in there, and uh, we also have very consistent temperatures. The point is, to make sure every seed is coming up and every seed is going into the ground as a healthy transplant. And then ideally it turns into cash later on. 
Now, I make it sound like we're perfect, but we're not. We still have lots of waste. There's still a lot of defect in our process. Um, but that's the general practice that we, that we use. Well, and I think this is something I've observed that doesn't just go with a scaling up situation, but really goes with successful farms versus farms that are struggling. And and I think defining success, you know, both in terms of personal quality of life and, and stress, as well as in, in economic returns, it really does seem like the farms that are, that are by and large successful, they they do harvest most of what they plant. There isn't, there isn't a lot of, of stuff that they're, that's not making it where I think a lot of times, and I think it's really easy to do, especially when you're in a growth phase to, to say, you know, I'm going to, I need to put out so much more stuff and suddenly you're, you're outpacing yourself and you're losing crops. I mean, you're losing them to bugs, you're losing them to weeds. Um, And it sounds like that's really an emphasis on your farm of, of not having had that because I guess that would go back into this reducing waste idea. Uh, yeah, and it sounds, I mean, it's a principle that sounds obvious. I mean, what if a farmer wants to grow a crop that's not going to be successful? Yeah, but a lot of farms out there sit there and they say, well, you know, we plan on losing 20 or 30% of our crops. And I always just go, wow, you know, you just planned on, yeah. on throwing away your profit margin. And that's correct. Uh, and, and according to the Natural Resources Defense Council, more than 20% of fresh fruits and vegetables never leave the field. And these are quality crops that don't that, that simply don't get harvested, and really that's a shameful statistic. Uh, because what what other industry, automobile, you know, automobile manufacturing, or you name it, what other industry could put up with that amount of waste? And when one of the things we started to do, and Paul uh, Paul and Sandy Arnold were kind of my inspiration for this. They had been keeping track of how much shrink they had. And shrink is the industry term for a uh, product that's the produce that's been harvested and packaged, went to market and came home on came home unsold. And Paul told me they don't have they now don't have enough to feed their two hogs. Okay. And he's a much larger operation than we are. And at the beginning at that time we had certainly had enough shrink to feed a hog or two. And we had probably we were estimating between fifty and hundred pounds on a weekly basis that we were shrinking. Crops coming home from market, ending up in our compost heap, which is which is really pitiful because these are these are all crops that we invested time purchasing the seeds, putting the seeds in, uh, weeding, harvesting, washing, packaging, getting to market, uh, transporting it to and from market. Market we had a lot invested in them, and it just throw them on the compost heap was it was really it was the practice that really eats your business alive. And so last year we started tracking our current shrink rate, and now the average is less than 10 pounds a week, which we're very proud of. And so it's it's really about a 14-gallon uh, tote or less on a weekly basis. And we're moving, you know, a couple, an 8 by 10 walk-in cooler amount of produce on a weekly basis. And so that's that's really the statistic I keep the closest eye on, is what's our shrink rate, and if we're shrinking, uh, if we're wasting the work we're putting into it, then something's wrong. Or so I want to ask a question about that because a lot of times I tell people, you know, if you sell out at farmer's market, you've actually, you know, you've actually done yourself a disservice because that's really, that's really potential income that you've left on the table. Um, you know, if you sell out of carrots, that means your price on carrots wasn't high enough. Okay. Right. And so yeah. how do you, how do you balance that out? Cause I mean, obviously the way to come home from without anything from farmer's market is to sell everything for 25 cents a bunch. I would take a little bit different approach on that because I do have a goal of selling out on a weekly basis. Okay. And I don't mind if we come home with a little, however, I don't want to come home 
because we want to keep our shrink rate as low as possible, we want every step we take on the farm, every effort to turn into cash, I, do, I want that shrink rate as, rate as close to zero as possible. So the system we have for markets is we keep track of how much is going into market, and whoever is managing the booth at the market, they send me an email at the end of market to tell me what was left over at the end of market. And we keep all this on a board that's hung at very prominently at eye level in the middle of the farm because it's the most important statistic we try to keep track of. And so at the end, then I'll, I'll make a notation of how many units hold that market. And so let's say last week, I think we took about 60 bunches of carrots in the market. Uh, we, we sold about uh, 55. And so that tells me we hit it about where right, next week I'm going to send 60 bunches of carrots in. And so we make a projection where we're going to send one, one week, or we're going to send this week is based on what it's sold the previous week because we found the best indicator, indicator of future behavior is past behavior. Right. That totally makes and, sense. And so let's say we sold, we sold out of those carrots at 10, which would be midway at the midway point of our market. Mark, and I would have workers tell me at the time, the time that crop sold out. So I know next week we're going to send about twice as many carrots. So I think that's a really key point there that a lot of people in their farmer's market records don't have is what time did you sell out? Because that's really, an, that may be even more important than, than did I sell out? Uh-huh. And I guess uh, the kind of business language that we and practitioners would use is, is recognizing the difference between opportunity loss and an actual loss. Okay. And we're talking about both of them here. But what an actual loss is, is shrink. Okay. That is money going out of your pocket that you put money into your, into your product, uh, that money left your pocket and you're not recuperating it. And opportunity loss isn't a real loss. Okay. An opportunity loss is that 30 bunches of, of carrots that I could have sold, but I didn't. Okay. Yeah. So an opportunity loss hurts us psychologically. It doesn't hurt us economically. Okay. In actual terms. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I, I mean, it's, I guess the, the pushback that I would have on that is that is, I mean, you're right. If you, if you, if you take too few carrots to market and, and you sell out of carrots, there's a, you haven't spent anything taking too few carrots to market. Um, That's correct. But I also, but I also feel like you have to balance that out with, with the fact that that opportunity, uh, that opportunity loss is is still a, it's an actual loss. It's a real thing. I mean, you're, you are leaving money on the table that you could have taken home from market. Uh, and again, I think that's where that pricing piece becomes such an important element. Uh, yeah, that's true. And, and I guess the, the way I look at, I would look at it is you want to be as precise as possible in meeting your market demand. Um, you don't, you don't want to be taking too much and you don't, and you don't want to leave it too much on the table like you're suggesting. Um, how, However, one of, the, uh, one of the realities of being a small business is relieving yourself of the burden of having to produce everything for everyone. And so, for instance, in the summer, we do not grow salad mix because it was just too burdensome for us to stay on top of our tomato demand and produce salad mix. We do transition to head lettuce during that season. And so we're leaving a lot on the table. We could sell salad mix during the summer. However, according to when we crunch the numbers, our time is best at focused on tomatoes. Our, our, our hourly wage is highest when we're working on tomatoes, when we're growing tomatoes rather than growing salad mix. And so we transition to the crops that are going to give us a higher hourly wage. And so I would say that 
ideally you have more markets than you can meet and you you can be selective and choose to grow the most profitable crops to a selective small number of markets. And that's really how we're able to make a living on one acre. Right. Um, is instead of growing 60 or 80 or more types of crops like many farms do, uh, we grow around 30. And so I call ourselves semi-diverse. We're not fully diversified. And we just have a ruthless focus on growing a small number of the most profitable crops. And the same with our markets. We could sell to maybe 10 or 15 or 20 different restaurants. And we could drive to Chicago or Detroit and sell to you know, 50 different restaurants. However, we're being, very, we're being very, very selective in choosing six or eight accounts that pay us on the most regular basis that are closest to home. And so combining those two, choosing uh, easy, profitable accounts with crops that we can grow successfully with our system and that are in high demand um, and that are profitable, but being selective on those two is how we're able to make a living on one acre. And that's one of the, if I would give any a piece of advice to a new farmer, it's to begin that process of honing in your first year. In your first year, you have to be experimental. You should grow a wide variety of crops. You should take into a wide variety of markets. However, in year two, cut out half your crops, cut out half your markets, choose the crops that were most successful, stick with the markets that pay you the most regularly, that are easiest to get to, and you'll see your profits start to go up. What happens, I think, in a lot of farms, they go the opposite direction. They think that in order to grow as a business, we need to keep growing more crops. We need to add chickens. We need to add beef. Uh, we need to add whatever. And we need to pick up a couple more accounts every year because that's how you grow as a business. And that's sort of our American mindset for business growth. It's more every year, bigger every year. And the lean approach is just the opposite. It says take a, a scalpel to your business, cut out the waste, be very selective in what you're doing, and actually by contracting the amount of work you do, you can increase your profits. Does that make sense? That, that makes a lot of sense. How do you balance that with, I mean, if you really took a scalpel to your business and tomatoes are the most profitable crop you've got, why are you growing anything else? Okay, that's that's a, a very fair point. Because if you take this lean system to its logical end, you're a monocrop farm. Pick the one crop that's most successful. And I guess I answer that by saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't use lean to replace your values. You can still have a strong set of values and still implement lean. So, like I said, we highly value local markets. And in actuality, there are restaurants that would probably pay us more that are maybe an hour from here. We're going to stick with our local value and use the lean system to grow food efficiently for these local restaurants. I think it's always the real challenge with with bringing any sort of an industrial system to the farm, whether, whether we're talking about uh, creating financial statements uh, and, and measuring, you know, measuring, measuring money as, as being a key metric on the farm or whether it's introducing lean, you, you always have to be careful about um, not, well, th they're all tools. They're tools for expressing your values. And, that's, that's and, yeah. and you just have to, you have to be careful with that. Uh, one of the mistakes a lot of people I've seen made with lean in agriculture. And one of the core principles is maximize six co-op. You know, you spent money on buildings and greenhouse, whatever, and get the most out of, out of them. And that makes sense with a greenhouse. You may as well use it as efficiently as possible. However, if you have a hog house, maximize six costs means stuff as many hogs in there as possible. And that's really misuse, a misuse of lean. 
because I think leading is really about listening and respecting your community and letting your community be the engine, you be the caboose, and giving your community what they want. And most likely, your community doesn't really want you to be stuffing uh, thousands of hogs in a small hog house. What your community wants is to be is for you to be farming in a way that's both business savvy and also respectful of the ecological system that we have to share with our urban our urban neighbors. So with that, Ben, I'm going to actually cut now to uh, to a word from our sponsors, and uh, and then we'll be right back. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Carl Hammer, the founder and the owner of the company, likes to describe potting soil as a set of promises, a promise that it has the nutrients the plant needs, that it has the microbes the plant needs to help forage those nutrients, and that it's free of weed seeds. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it year after year in soil blocks and in traditional cell flats. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years, a real testament to the structure of the soil, which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots on an ongoing basis. When you put plants in containers, whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 1020 cell tray, you need an optimized matrix of materials that can produce a healthy plant within a restricted media volume. Vermont compost potting soils provide just that consistently year after year. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook download when you sign up for a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. I've been a fan of the spoken word since I read along with children's stories on a portable 78 RPM record player. I love the way that engaging in the oral tradition works with a different part of my brain than reading does and the presence that it brings to ideas and voices. And it's so easy to tap into spoken word audio now that you probably carry an iDevice or an Android with you just about everywhere you go. Audible has over 100,000 titles that you can choose from, ranging from great science fiction and romance to self-help and business titles. I want to recommend one book that will resonate with anybody who has run a business or a farm, The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Gerber lays out the fundamental challenge of making the leap from being great at doing the work to becoming great at running a business and provides practical suggestions for fostering that change. Just go to audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer to get your free download of the E-Myth Revisited or any other book from Audible's extensive library. All right, we're back with Ben Hartman from Clay Bottom Farm, uh, talking about lean production on the farm. So, Ben, you've in your book you you lined out these five principles of lean, which uh, sorting, setting in order, shining, standardizing, and sustaining. Um, so, I I, I kind of like just to walk through some examples of each of those and how you're putting those in place on your farm. So, w- starting with that first one, I mean, sorting. What does that mean in a lean context? Yeah, sorting is the hardest one. It means to ruthlessly eliminate anything that is not absolutely necessary for your production system. And what that means is if you don't need tool tool X, Y, or Z to grow your crops, it shouldn't be on your farm. And it, that, it doesn't mean stash it away. It means get it off the property. Okay? So the only okay. items, the only items left on your farm should be those that you use every single day to add to your product. Period. Okay, there's no exceptions. And so it's very ruthless, and we had a hard time doing this because we love going to auctions, we love collecting tools, and we had a uh, we had an eclectic mix of of tools. And we're, in reality, is we 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 did have to 
concede the truth that we are stumbling over ourselves looking for the right tool way too often. And so what we, we did is we really thought hard about how to simplify our system. And so we chose two uh, hand harvesting tools that we liked the most, that we found we were using for most of our crops, and we got rid of everything else. So what two did you hang on to? Okay, yeah, uh, one was the curved, I believe they call them grape shears, uh, through the Johnny's catalogs or weepers, and the red hand on their curve. And they're just excellent for harvesting everything from peppers uh, um, to anything that else that we need to be snipped. And then we use uh, the, I think it's a 10-inch harvesting knife, um, also sold through Johnny's. It has a sort of rectangular blade and an orange handle. And those we use to harvest our greens, uh, to trim up our crops, to trim the tops off of fennel, to trim our carrots and that sort of thing. Very excellent, multi-purpose, very durable tool. And both of those are, they're not the cheapest hand tools you're going to find. However, they're, they're very versatile for a small produce operation. And they're so versatile, in fact, we found that they're the only two we really needed. And we got rid of everything else. And, and we purchased probably five or six of each. And we, and so what we, what we used to do is store all of our tools in a centralized tool storage area. area. I guess this is moving on to this, the set and order piece. We used to store them in a centralized tool storage area and go to that area to get our tools and walk to our place of work to use the tool and then return the tool back to that central tool storage area. Because that's what we'd seen on other farms at the system I grew up with. Uh, so the lean coach who worked with us, I uh, said what we should do is take a stick of dynamite to that tool storage area and just get rid of it. <laughs> okay. And this is a, this is, uh, it didn't sit well with me because I'd actually spent some time and money remodeling it and setting up posts and everything in there. He said that lean, what you really should be doing, is storing tools at their points of use. And so, for instance, he asked to watch me, if he could observe my tomato pruning process. So I went to the tool storage area, got the pruners, walked to the greenhouse, pruned the tomatoes, and returned the pruners. And he said, really, what we should be doing is storing that pruner right next to the tomatoes, like hanging a hook right in the greenhouse so that pruners is right where we need it. And so that's what we did. All of the tools that were in our tool storage area, we... I uh, spread them, we spread them, we spread them out around the property, uh, close to the points of use. And so we hung hoses at the back end of greenhouses, close to the faucets where we're going to connect them up to. Uh, those two hand harvesting tools I talked about earlier, earlier we purchased some high power magnets uh, on our greenhouses and we, um, we stick those on the magnets right, right at the greenhouses where we're using them. Um, and you can go on and on with all of our tools, our shovels and digging forks. Um, we hung uh, close to where our carrot plots are or wherever we need them. And so set in order uh, is a second principle. Okay, so when you put those those grape shears out, you're using those in different parts of the operation as well. So are you buying extras of those tools then? Uh, yes, we are. And it is a bit more money and it costs us a couple hundred dollars to purchase enough that we could sufficiently spread them out around the property. Uh, however, it's been worth it because we're just we're never hunting for a tool. I mean, we are occasional. We're not perfect. We still lose tools like everyone else. Okay, thank you. However, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so there's very little, however, hunting for tools compared to our old system. And so we feel like it's paid off. You're kind of looking at some indirect 
cost savings that. I mean, it's not something where you're really going to be able to sit down and say, I saved X number of dollars by having two extra pairs of tomato shears, but but it is something where where you're kind of counting on that to to increase That's the correct. overall efficiency on your farm. That's right, because every step that you take is a cost. In in the time it took you to take that step and the energy and effort it took you to take that. So if we can take fewer, if we can make fewer motions and still get our product to the customer, that's our goal. Um, the other indirect cost savings is we don't have to store these old tools anymore. We had a couple, we sent a couple wagon loads of old tools off property. We purchased an old farm, and a lot of these tools and pieces of equipment were here before we moved. And so it wasn't just our, um, but a certain, you know, certainly a lot of it was junk that we had accumulated. And I guess the reality is, if you keep Anything, it's a cost, even if the cost is not obvious. And what that means is there's a cost in storing something because you have to pay property taxes on the building you're storing the items in. You're going to have to keep repairing that roof. Uh, the item's going to get old. It's going to keep rusting and devaluing. These are all costs. And I've always been interested in the psychology of workspaces. And in other words, what, what does it take to be happy in your workspace. And one of the realities for me is if I kept something we weren't really needing, it occupied it a little niche in my mind. I occupied just a little space in my mind. And to me, that's a cost. And if I can, if I can get that heavy implement off the property, quit mowing around it, quit thinking about it, that makes me happier because I can be more focused in the space that I'm working in. There's fewer distractions. Um, one of the things that psychologists have noted about workspaces is, is people actually are happy if, when they have precisely what they need and no more. And the reason is this idea of focus, you can get into a state of psychological flow. For instance, when you're downhill skiing, people find that a very they find it very easy to get into a flow because they're not distracted. You have to be focused or else you're going to hit a tree. And the same with playing a game at chess. Uh, you have exactly the pieces you need, and there's a set of orderly rules, and you're more likely to experience flow. And I, I think you can, we can do that with our workspaces also. If we lean them up, get rid of what we're not, not using, and uh, just work in spaces that are clean, uh, that are orderly, and that are fun to be, be in. That actually is an ideal lead into this, the shine idea, which I was particularly fascinated with, with my background in food safety, the emphasis on just keeping things clean. As, as part of the research for the book, I met in Chicago with a lean farm consultant uh, who works with farmers across Scandinavia and in Asia to implement the lean system. And she helps them also implement this 5S system. And I can tell you from the photo she showed me, and I believe there's one published in the book, uh, that they are just way ahead of us in terms of keeping their farms orderly and setting up their systems for logical flow. And some of the workspaces on even dairy farms, uh, hog farms, look to me like you're stepping into an American hospital. And it looked like you could eat off the floor of some of these spaces. And the idea behind going the extra effort to shine your spaces is so that you can see. And in the literal sense, but also in the metaphysical sense that you can, you can see what ace and you can see value. If you have a processing room that is well, the wall, the walls and the floor and the floors are painted, 
you're going to be able to notice where waste is creeping in your system a lot more easily than if it's a dingy, dimly, dimly lit room. So the point, the point isn't to make your space look pretty. It's to, it's to clear the clutter so that you can see your work and cut out the waste. And I think it's just, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me how, how that actually really does fit in with, um, with some of the pressures that we've got on the farms right now to create spaces that are cleaner. And, and I, you know, I'm always a big fan of, of acknowledging, Hey, we work on farms and that means that not everything's going to shine all the time. And certainly <clears throat> you're, you know, the, I mean, the reality is that it's a dirty, stinky business, but, but where possible, you're really making that extra effort. Those first three are, are really the core of the system. Uh, the fourth principle is standardized. In other words, how do you do sorting, setting in order, and shining as a routine activity? And one of the things we did is, and Lean is also very big into visual systems, we took a picture of each of our workspaces in their ideal clean state. And then we hung those pictures on the wall at eye level in those spaces. And so when we're done using them, workers can just look at the picture and return it to that condition. And the way we used to do it is I used to have to go around and tell people, hey, put the totes over here, you uh, hang the knives over here, you squeegee it, that sort of thing. And now all I have to do is tell them, hey, just look at the picture or make it look like what the picture and saves a lot of verbal commands. And then workers can do it in whatever order they feel uh, makes the most sense. So in some ways, it's actually that that standardization is really giving those people some, you're, you're empowering folks rather than having to say, do this, then do this, then do this. Uh, yeah, and it goes back to making our system as, as simple as possible for a new worker to step in and feel empowered. Uh, another example is we, got, we used to have an eclectic mix of harvesting tote. That was very particular. I liked a certain type of tote to put my head lettuce in, a certain type of tote to harvest peppers in. We realized that worked for me, however, it didn't work for new workers coming onto the farm. And so we got, got rid of our eclectic mix and, and winnowed it down to two types of totes. Uh, that we use for everything on the farm. And that makes it easy for a new worker to step in and know what to do. Yeah, that's really great. And I think something that I've, I've noticed, I mean, when you don't have that kind of standardization, it, it becomes, it's, it's become such a juggling act. You know, you're always, you know, maybe you're short on this kind of crate and are you going to substitute that kind of crate and who gets to decide which one you're going to substitute and what are the, what are the trade-offs between the two? How many fit in this? How many fit in that? I love that idea of, of even just standardizing those toasts. And what other kinds of things have you standardized on your farm? Uh, really the, to- the best example of the totes and those hand harvesting tools. Uh, another uh, another one is our process uh, for raking up and uh, prepping beds. Uh, so we realize that after or we harvest our solid greens, uh, especially after that first cutting, we don't always get all the greens into our hands, and some of them are going to fall back onto the bed and they'll compromise our second and third and fourth harvest. So what we started to do is we use tine rakes, uh, multiple width tine rakes, uh, to rake, to actually physically rake over the bed after each time that we harvest. And that renovates the bed, it scratches the soil surface a little, and just cleans them up. So they're, our next time, next time we go around to harvest, uh, our second third cuttings will be much higher quality. And so what we did was we purchased not one of these rakes, we purchased five and we hung them up around the property close to each of these beds. Had we just purchased one rake and kept in a central tool storage area, 
there'd be a lot of motion going back to collect the rake and return it. But by having a rake everywhere we need it, we can just quickly grab it uh, when and where we need it. What about this this idea of sustaining on the farm then? Uh, and the, So the last of these five S's. Uh, yeah, sustaining is really, it's, re- it's really more of a psychological concept. It's about applying self-discipline to make sure that every year your spaces are getting cleaner, more sorted, better organized, and not dirtier and trashier every year. On so many farms, you can almost tell how old the farm is by how many piles of junk they have laying around, okay? And, and I don't, I don't mean uh, to say that we're perfect here as we have our, our, our piles of junk laying around, but the point is that every year those piles get smaller and smaller. Okay. Every year your spaces get neater and neater and cleaner and cleaner. And one of the ways they do this in Toyota is, is they will actually assign a worker at the end of each week to go, go around the facility with a clipboard and give a numerical rating based on the cleanliness of workspace. And the goal is a higher rating each week, and then rewards are given for the cleanest spaces. And that seemed like a bit much for our small farm, <laughs> a bit formal. However, I like the principle. And I like the idea that anyone, not just the farmer, but anyone, even a visitor, should be able to walk around your farm and notice what's out of place. Like your hooks should be so obvious if something's not on a hook and laying somewhere else that any worker could go, anyone could come on this farm and say, go around and rate your farm according to uh, how orderly it, it is or should be. And so they should see blank spaces on your hooks. They should be able to look at your uh, clean pictures that you hung on the wall and notice things are out of order. Uh, the point is just make it super obvious as simple as possible what your system is for keeping things orderly. And then also once a year, we go back to the very beginning of the system and we'll sort. And so in our processing area, for instance, we have on the calendar when we're going to do a, do a 5S system in the processing area this fall. And we'll go through and we'll sort and we'll set in order. We'll do all the steps again. And it's just going to take a few minutes because we've been doing it for several years now. However, the point is that how can we improve it just a little bit this year? And I like to do that. I like to make sure spaces are, are improving, even if it's just a little. Even if we just hang one more hook or install one more light so that we know we're, uh, we're on a forward trajectory. I like that idea of that continual improvement. I think it's such an important concept in it. And it really... I mean, I think it speaks to that idea. You're either going forwards or you're going backwards. You know, it's almost Mm -hmm. impossible to stand still. And so I think by putting that effort and saying, you know, every year we're going to make this a little bit better, you Uh actually increase your odds of not backsliding. Uh, And Lean, the word they use for continuous improvement is Kaizen. And Kaizen is, I think, an important concept to keep in mind. And in in particular, since every farm is different, I think you should practice Kaizen in your own context. In other words, you shouldn't read my book or someone else's book and graft my ideas directly onto your farm if they don't make sense in your context. I think a lot of times we compare ourselves to others too often. And what works in one context isn't necessarily going to work in another. The point is to evaluate flow in your context and what are the particular types of waste in your context and how how can you pull those waste out of the river that flows through your farm? And it's going to look different on every farm. 
I think that's really good advice. And one of the things that I really like about your book, Ben, is that it it doesn't lay out in a prescriptive fashion, this is what you need to do. It really is about process. And and I do feel like, um, you know, after reading through it, it's, it's something that I could apply to my podcasting studio, or I could apply it to, you know, one of my clients who's farming 150 acres of vegetables. It, it doesn't just fit in your, in your operation. And you haven't really described just a system you've really described a, a way of approaching a system. And I, I uh, nice, nice job. Well, <laughs> one of the inspirations for how I wanted to go about writing this book is uh, at Toyota, Teichi Ono, uh, who developed the lean system for Toyota, used to say, at Toyota, we don't build better cars. We build better people. And because better, pe- better people is what will build better cars. And so their job from a management perspective was to focus focus on making their work environments such that people are happy to work there, that they can really dig in and be empowered to improve uh, to improve things at Toyota. Because the reality is, it's it's not uh, especially on a large farm. It's not you as the farmer, as the manager, who are closest to the waste. Actually, the workers, your people, are at least as close to waste as you are. And so you should be relying on them to spot for waste and give you ideas for how to remove that waste. One of the things we started, one of the things we started to do on our farm along, along those lines is whoever does the market, our farmer's market, I haven't sent an email of what, what came home from market unsold, but I also have them jot improvement ideas. For instance, did carrots with tops sell faster than carrots that we had back? Uh, what were some comments from customers and ways we could improve our, our, our product offering at the market? And the same within the field. I have a list of these 10 types of waste, and we try to tell our workers that we're very interested in their ideas for removing them because they're going to be as close to those types of waste as we, we are. They're the ones digging up the rotten carrots, or they're the ones spending hours on in uh, weeding, and maybe there's a faster way to, to, to cultivate that area. I really think it's so important to get to get your employees involved in those kinds of aspects of the farm to really have them thinking and engaged rather than just out there doing. And it's it's a theme that's come up again and again in the course of of the podcast is uh, is really how important people are and and how important it is to honor them and to create systems that honor them, uh, you know, as as whole people. One of my uh, favorite lean concepts that I came across is the idea of kata or K-A-T-A. And I guess originally kata would have referred to routine movements as in the martial arts. Uh, these are movement sequences that are practiced so often that they become, uh, they become habituated, almost as, as habitual as breathing. And the idea with lean in kata is that your habits of waste elimination for you and your workers are as habitual as breathing. In other words, every time you or a worker is transplanting something, in the back of your mind, you're thinking about a better way of doing that process. Or you're keeping those 10 types of waste in your mind and noticing, hey, there was some defect waste here. There's some motion waste uh, here. And how can we get rid of it the next time? And so it's a, it's a visual process. It's often counterintuitive, and it does take practice. Um, but I can say that after practicing it for several years, it does become easier. Ben, let's let's turn here to the lightning round. Our questions at the end of every at every of every interview, and and the first question we always ask is, "What's your favorite tool on the farm?" 
I would have to say it's our carrot digging implement. Uh, when we were evaluating, one of the types of waste is overburdening. And so every year we sit down and ask, well, when are we the most worn out? When are we the most overburdened? And that's the type of waste, and so how can we get rid of it? And it seemed to be with digging those carrots by hand. And so I, I had searched for a carrot digging implement. didn't find anything on the market. market. And so I went down to an Amish machine shop. I told them the problem we're having. And uh, so they and I together uh, designed this uh, 30-inch uh, carrot digger, a uh, root digger that fits behind our tractor. And it just lifts those carrots out of the ground and removes, uh, makes that job a lot easier. Are you going to send me a picture of that so that we can put that in the show notes? I, I'd be happy to do that. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Hey, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened on your farm? Well, that's a tough question. Weird things happen all the time out here. Um, what's the last weird thing that happened on your farm? <laughs> a few years ago, we built an experimental greenhouse. It wasn't huge, like 30 by 45 feet. And it was designed to be a movable greenhouse. And I'll tell you, the product was a, fly, a flying success because it moved. The wind picked it up one night and threw it on top of our barn. And actually, this on is top what, of the barn. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. So I, mean, I told you we're not perfect here. Things go wrong. There's still plenty of waste. And anyhow, within minutes, our Amish neighbors had, um, were on the way to our farm on their on their bicycles with utility knives in hand to help me cut the plastic. You know, they thought ahead about what needed to happen. And it was just a very surreal moment to be in a greenhouse on the barn, uh, cutting away at it and uh, hacking it into pieces so we get it off the barn. Um, I don't know if surreal is the right word or just uh, extremely disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Probably a little bit of both. If you could choose one farmer superpower, what would it be? I would say if I had one superpower, uh, it would be to be able to lift three or four times more weight than I can. seems like things are always, <laughs> he- always heavier than, than a human be- person can lift. That's a really practical choice there, Ben. I like okay. that. <laughs> I like that. And, and if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I would say, I would, I would, I would give two pieces of advice here. Uh, number one is do not, hur- do not hurry. Do not go slow. In other words, find a good pace for yourself and for your work. And I think there were times when I hurried too much, and there are probably times when I slowed down too much. But it's uh, it's been helpful to think carefully about what's the right pace for me uh, and for our operation, and can we stick with that pace and notice when we're hurrying, noticing when we're going too slow. That's sort of theoretical. On the practical side, I wish I had begun earlier building longer-term infrastructure. Uh, there are too many ex- experimental PVC hoop houses, um, kind of cheap structures that were uh, not built to last. And I wish I had probably built uh, more permanent um, uh, stationary uh, quality greenhouses from the very big- beginning. Ben, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I think there's been a ton of value in this in this podcast. I really thank you for making the time this morning to talk with us about your lean farming operation. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 34 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Hartman. That's H-A-R-T-M-A-N. 
If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or at purplepitchfork.com. That's my website for my consulting and education business instead of my podcasting line of work. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.